church is always interesting coming up with a summer series because we know people are in and out and here and not here, so it's hard to build week after week. We usually try to come up with something where you can kind of do it, and then next week will be a little different. And, uh, and you know, we want to do something that will be a little bit fun, a little bit different this summer. So what we've been doing is taking the songbook of our lives, the most iconic songs that we could think of, and looking at spiritual elements in them. <clears throat> Music is incredibly powerful. That's why we tend to worship God with and through music. Music has the power to move us towards truth, or it also has the power to move us towards lies. And so what we've been doing is looking at these, these very powerful songs that almost all of us know and have heard, and looking at what is it in there, what truth is in there, or what lie is in there. i got a hook in, in, in our heart. And we, we've had a lot of fun with this now. Uh, and if you're going to look at iconic songs that have been out there over the last... 20, 30, 40, 50 years, eventually you're going to stumble upon the Beatles. There's just no way around it, right? And so this morning, we're going to not just stumble upon the Beatles, we're going to um, touch on, hit, uh, sing together, and reflect on the most popular song the Beatles ever had, a song called Hey Jude. Now, I don't know if you know the story about Hey Jude, it's kind of a fascinating story. In, in 1968, John Lennon had just come home and told his wife Cynthia and his son um, Julian, that he was going to be leaving because he had found another one. Um, he was going to be taking up with Yoko Ono, and you know, if you know anything about musical history, it had an impact on the band. About a month later, in, in, the, in the summer of 68, Paul McCartney drove out to visit Cynthia and, and John's son Julian. They had, she had especially, been a part of kind of their social circle since the early 60s when the band had just kind of taken up. McCartney's quote, he, he said later, quote, it seemed a bit much for them suddenly to be persona non grata and out of my life. Cynthia Lennon recalled McCartney's, uh, recalled McCartney's surprise visit. She said, I was touched by his obvious concern for our welfare. And on the journey there to visit them, he wrote this song, Hey Jude, in his car. She said, I'll never forget Paul's gesture of care and concern in coming to see us. Many of you know that the song was originally not Hey Jude, it was Hey Jules for Julian, um, John Lennon's son. Paul said, I knew it wasn't going to be easy for him, and, and I wanted, I wanted to, to write something for him. This song, uh, like last week, we've been going through songs, and none of them had hit number one until last week. This is the complete opposite. This song spent nine weeks at number one in the United States it was the longest for any single Beatles song, and in fact, it set the all-time record, at least at the time, for the longest run at the top of the U.S. charts. This single has sold eight million copies. It's almost always on critics' lists of the greatest songs of all time. In fact, in 2013, Billboard named it the 10th biggest song in, the, in history. Because there's something there. Um, there's something about taking a sad song and making it better. So. The band has been practicing all week. I was hoping Tim was going to grow his hair out into like a mop top thing, but he didn't. He refused to do that for me. Um, and so now I'm going to ask you to get up just so you sing along with the group to kind of engage you in it. Now, we're going to let Tim ha handle the Hey Jude, especially that screaming part. Let him do that. He'll handle that. You know what your part is going to be? Who knows what your part's going to be? See? See, this service is going to be so much better than first. Don't tell them, but I can, I can sense it already. All right, so you're going to do the na-na-na's like, you know, your plane's going down, all right? All right, let's do it together. Take it away, Ben. 
Na 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 na. Tim Berry with the screeching. Tim Meyer. Tim Berry with the screeching. The doo-wop girls in the background. It was a piece of art. That song has had been covered by like a million bands, right? Like, you can't go, if you go out to a pub or a bar, I mean, you sit around for any amount of time, eventually somebody starts playing Hey Jude. Um, I think Elvis in his Memphis sessions even covered Hey Jude. Uh, Crazy Al Yankovic covered Hey Jude, right? But my favorite, and I mean, this is just, it just resonates deep into my soul with, with significance and beauty and meaning. I mean, deep felt meaning is this version right here. And now, here to sing and eat for you are those four fabulous bugs, the Beatles, and Cookie Monster! Hey, food, me and double. For fish, meat, or cheese called cheddar. See, this is how we learned about the basic food groups when we were kids. None of this internet stuff. Tim was so worried he was going to get up and start singing Hey, Food this morning. He had a little panic attack before the service. And see, you know, this is fun, right? Cookie Monster makes it fun. The na na na's kind of make it rollicking. But if you look at the song, it's not that fun a song. I mean, the truth is, the lyrics of the song are, are just loaded with pain. The pain of a young boy's dad, like abandoning him, leaving his mom and breaking up his home. In fact, Julian Lennon went on to say that Paul McCartney in his formative days was more of a father figure to him than John was. I mean, just think about him driving out there and writing a song for him. It talks about the, the pain of betrayal of a spouse and the disappointment of dreams of growing old together, being tasted for the first time. For Paul, it was the loss of friendships, the dismantling of the familiar. It was, in all of their lives, a sad song that they wanted to make better. Now, as the pastor of a, a decent-sized church in New Jersey, here's what I've come to know. This song, this sad song, eventually is one that we all sing. Life, loss, sin, it touches us all, brokenness of the world, disappointments, relational betrayal, broken promises, shattered dreams. I mean, if you live long enough, here's the truth, you're going to sing a sad song. It becomes our song. And that's why, if you want to know why it resonates, is because you hear it and you, you think, yeah, you know, I, I'd like this to turn around somehow. I, I'd like to make it better. As, as a pastor, I also have the privilege to be allowed into a lot of people's lives. And I can testify to these lyrics. I know why this song resonates, because the truth is, marriages do come apart. Adultery is very real. Fathers do leave sons. Children do walk away, or sometimes children are, are, are violently torn away. 
from grieving parents. Cancer is common. Some of you are dealing with this in yourself or with family. Cancer is common. And jobs are lost and accidents really do happen. Houses are foreclosed on. Dreams and plans go unrealized. And the thing, here's what can be so frustrating if we're just honest about it. Because this doesn't, like, I, I don't feel like this is taught right well. Here, here's the thing. If we're honest about it, these things seem to happen in equal measure to both good people and bad people. To followers of Jesus and to those who could care less about God. Every year in following God over the last bunch of years, I don't know why he's been doing this with me, but I feel like the Lord kind of gives me this new teaching. And it's not like every January 1st he goes, okay, John, here's the new thing. It's like he keeps beating me over. I'm not that smart. And so God tends to beat me over the head with it until I really get it. And then it's like, okay, now we can move on. And so over the last year or two, there was this teaching that God was, was making me, pushing me into over and over. And because you guys have to listen to me every week, I don't tend to tell you here's what God's telling me, but you hear it come out when I'm up here. And what God was teaching me over the last couple of years, because it's really hard, was this. Trust me. If you would just really, really trust me and believe and believe in me that I'm for you and not against you, that I have you, you could live without fear. And then he would show me that Jesus, the, the thing that Jesus said, his number one saying in the scripture was not, you know, repent. Um, it wasn't about hell or heaven or money. He's number one saying the thing, the question he asked the most is this, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Don't be afraid. Trust in me. Trust also in my Father. Believe in me. And so God, God has been teaching me that over and over. John, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not. Now, see, there's a, there's a converse statement here. Because if you don't trust in the Lord, then what you tend to do is lean on your own understanding. What God has been saying is, don't, don't do that. Trust in me. You might not understand, but trust in me. And if I'm going to say that I know that God loves me perfectly, then the Bible says, well, if that's true and you really believe that, then this is what the Bible says, that perfect love casts out fear. And so I really shouldn't be afraid anymore of, like, anything. But, but something, it's kind of like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. I don't have it perfectly, but I got it. I, I, I got to believe, I got to trust that you're for me, that you're, that you're with me. But over these last few months, and even in our own family, uh, with my kids and, and with my wife, um, we've experienced some pain and, and some disappointments in our family, ranging from uh, uh, terminal illness to people we love, right down to um, uh, colleges not gotten into that we felt we should have gotten into and, and, and jobs that should have been achieved that weren't achieved. And here's the lesson that's been playing in my heart, and my family's been hearing it over and over now. Um, and so they get sick of it, and now you'll get sick of it, but let me just share it with you anyway. There was an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, okay? It's a, it's a pretty big book in the Old Testament. We talk about Isaiah's prophecies at Christmas a lot because he prophesied about Jesus. But in the Old Testament, he has another kind of famous line in there. I, uh, Isaiah said this. He said that God is the potter and we are the clay. And so what I feel like God has been telling me, once you get the trust part down, if you trust the potter then you have to trust the process. If you trust the potter, then you have to trust the process. You have to walk in the process, believing that what's happening to you 
is for your own good, that's tough. I thought it was tough to trust. <laughs> Trusting the process is even harder because most of the time the process ain't all that fun. I mean, think about just if you go to the pottery analogy, right? The purpose of the kiln, if you ask the clay right before it goes into the kiln, it's probably not thinking it's a glorious idea. But the process of the kiln is not to burn or to destroy or to break, but to strengthen and bring out the inner beauty of the pot. Now see, let me repeat that. The purpose of the kiln is not to burn or break or destroy, but to strengthen and bring the inner beauty out of the pot so that it comes out exactly as the creator wanted it, as the potter desired it to be, as he created it to be. The kiln isn't a pleasant experience, but it's a necessary experience in order to reveal the strength and beauty of the potter's work. No one likes the kiln. I don't like the kiln. But the process by which change and transformation, and as we prayed about earlier, the process by which I become more holy and more like my dad in heaven, that process in our lives is often not a pleasant one. It doesn't feel good. But here's the question. What would happen if you really trusted the potter? If you really, really, really trusted the potter? Because if you trust the potter, you can trust his process. How would you live? Here's what I mean specifically. How would you live? What would you do? What could you do? How would you react in every step of the process you're going through? No matter how painful or disappointing, if you knew that the potter was with you and had you, how would you as a 17-year-old who spent every night doing homework, signing up for the silly extracurriculars, right? 12 varsity letters, math league, Spanish league, AP, IB, all because you're trying to get into one of those IVs. And week after week, you run out to that mailbox hoping to see the big letter, and you just get the small letter. Now, see, I'm showing my age because they don't even send letters anymore. I realized that this year. It's all in emails. I kept going out to the mailbox. <laughs> but how would you react? I mean, what? Oh, God, I prayed about this. I worked so hard. I asked you. I got down on my knees every night. I asked you if you, if you would lead me, if you would get me into one of these schools. See, what changes in how you react to this if you trust the potter and you trust the process? How do you respond to not getting the job? I, I can't believe she got the job. She's unqualified for it. I wonder who she knew. I wonder what she did that she got this job. How would you respond if you trusted the potter and trusted the process? Because maybe you start going, well, I guess I'm not supposed to go to that school. I guess God doesn't want me to have that job, but I know he's for me, so this has got to be good. See, if you trust the potter and you trust the process, everything starts to change. Every way, the way you react to everything starts to, to, to change in your response. Receiving the bad diagnosis, being touched by betrayals, it's a huge and profound thing. I'm telling you, if we could get this concept at deep levels, if we could get to the place where we say, I trust the potter, so I have to trust the process. The rejection letter goes from God let me down uh, to God, this is not what you have for me. This is, oh God, I'm not going to Princeton. This is fantastic. <laughs> this is not what you want for me. 
I tell my kids all the time, I said, you know, when we get these rejections, when these things don't go the way we want, yet we all, we all pray, God, show me your will, show me your will. See, the truth is most of the time when we pray, God, show me your will, what are we actually praying? God, give me my will. Because when he shows us his will, often we go, well, I don't really want that. I want it mine. And so God uses these things in this process in our lives to bring about refinement and holiness and, and to connect us deeper to him and to, bring up, and to bring about like a reflection of our dad. Now, I know that maybe some of those examples aren't the hardest examples, college rejection or maybe a job passing you over. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to share with you the story of a, a character in, in the Old Testament, a man named Joseph. This is a different Joseph than maybe many of you are familiar with. It's not Jesus' father, Joseph. It's not Mary's husband, Joseph. It's a man who lived thousands of years before him. And maybe if you know the scripture is a little bitter, you, you've heard of how God began to reestablish his relationship with humanity through somebody named Abraham, right? And then uh, we talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, the next generation was this man, Joseph. And, and here's we, we can see when we look at the life of Joseph. We can see what happens when somebody, when, when the best and the worst happens to somebody who knows the potter and trusts the process. Because here's what I can tell you about Joseph. In Joseph's life, he experienced highs that you and I will never touch. And he experienced pain and betrayal and depths to levels that you, you'll, never, you'll never go. And in looking at him, we can see one thing which comes through so clearly. You can see what it's like to live through prosperity and pain when you trust the, when you trust the potter and you trust the process. So take a look with me. I'm going to start. It's, uh, I'm going to start in verse 37, or chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. This is the account of Jacob, right, and his family, Joseph. When Joseph was 17 years old, he tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Billa and Zilpha. But Joseph reported, I love this, Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. I love when my kids do that. <laughs> Happened just last night. <laughs> because they're dumb enough to post it on social media. <laughs> okay, hope you're watching this down there at VT. I'm going to get in trouble for this now, too. <laughs> He's never watching it. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. This is not going to make him a real favorite. This isn't either because Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, right? This was, it doesn't say anything about it being a technicolor dream coat, but this is the real story. It was a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. In fact, they couldn't say a kind word to him. This is, some of you know I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. And my brothers were texting me all night last night pictures of a crumpled up Tony Romo lying lame on the ground as he's out for another six to eight weeks. They couldn't say a kind word to me. <laughs> One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Now, this is low EQ on Joseph's part here, but listen to the dream. He says to his brothers, I picture me saying this to Matt and Glenn, guys, I had a dream. This is the dream. We were out in the field. We were tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bound down before mine. 
My brothers would have done the, this would have been a biblical account of what would have happened to me too here. His brothers responded, so you think you're going to be our king, do you? You actually think you're going to reign over us. And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. And so here at the heart of the story, just like at the heart of the song, right, at the heart of so much pain and disappointments in our lives are these broken relationships, relational dysfunction, father, son, brother, sister, right? Deep stuff, not easy stuff, painful stuff, jealousies, bitterness. And the truth is Joseph's responsible for some of it. I mean, he probably should have thought before speaking, but nevertheless, it doesn't excuse the fate which is about to befall him. Continuing on in the story in Genesis 37, 18, when Joseph's, oh, well, let me tell you what happened. So, so Joseph's brothers go out to work in the field and they're gone for a certain amount of time. So Joseph's father pulls Joseph aside because Joseph is his favorite and says, Joseph, go check on your brothers. The scripture continues. Joseph's brothers see him coming. They recognize him in the distance and these approaches, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and we can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben, one of the brothers, heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into the empty cistern here in the wilderness and then he'll die without us laying a hand on him. I would prefer a different rescue from my brother than that one, but that was Reuben's plan and you know, the scripture indicates he was thinking he would come back maybe to help him at a separate time. And so that's what they do. Uh, into the hole goes Joseph, left to die of exposure or as a, a snack for a, a predator. That's not the plan. That's not the dream. It's funny, if you know the story, the scripture says the brothers throw him into the sister and then they sit down for lunch. Can't you picture Joseph in the hole? Hey, guys. I get it. I'm going to stop with this stuff. Forget that whole dream thing. I was just kidding. Give you my coat. Guys, throw down a sandwich. But that's not what happens. Scripture actually it tells that um, the brothers, as they're eating, see some Ishmaelite traders coming along, and they realize, you know what? Let's just, instead of having the blood of our brother on our own hands, let's just sell him to these guys as a slave so we don't have to deal with, with all of the ramifications of dad and what this would mean to him if he ever found out we did this. We'll just sell him into slavery. Now, here, here's interesting, because now you're going to see what happens when somebody knows the potter and trusts the process, okay? In Genesis 39, verses 1 and 2, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, his brothers sell him to the Ishmaelite traders for, for some silver, and then the Ishmaelites traders drag him into Egypt where they sell him to someone named Potiphar, who was an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. He was a very important man, the king of Egypt. So let's go over this one more time. Joseph is hated by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit by them, left to die, they drag him out of the pit, they sell him into slavery, and then he's resold into slavery, and the scripture concludes with, the Lord was with Joseph. To which you and I would say, no, he's not. No, Bible, wrong. I mean, are you kidding me? The Lord is with Joseph? He, he's the good guy, and there's bad things happening. I, I thought if you were a good guy, good things happen. And a bad guy, bad things happen. 
I mean, to me, if the Lord was with him, if he was with the Lord, why is he betrayed by his brothers? Why is he thrown into a pit? Why is he sold into slavery twice? How could the Lord be with him? And so what does Joseph do? Well, Joseph does what you do when you trust the potter and you trust the process. Because even when bad things happen to good people, he understands, I know this God and I know he has a plan for me. And so he winds up working for this Potiphar, the captain, the captain uh, for Pharaoh, and he does such a good job. See, here's the amazing thing about Joseph. He, he's so freed in believing that he, get, that he is part of what God is doing, that God is working in this. He's not trying to escape. He's just actually working. The scripture, Paul would write this thousands of years later, um, work in everything as if unto the Lord. The New Testament talks about that later. Um, he just starts doing it. He just starts working for Potiphar, believing that God's in it. So he, he says, God has me here. I guess I should just start working. And he works so well that Potiphar is so impressed with him, he puts him in charge of everything he has. And then things take a turn for the better. I mean, the fiery kiln seems to get turned down a little. Times get good. The process goes better. But then something very interesting happens. Genesis chapter 39, verses 6 to 7. We have an elder in our church. His name is Joe Fleck. This is his life verse. He tells at every elder meeting, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. You see, Joseph and I, we share this same curse. This, this is not easy. But yet Joseph is sold out to God. He's so, he's so believing, and he doesn't have a Bible, and there's no churches. All he knows is the story of his father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God had been faithful all these years, and he believes in the potter, so he trusts the process. And even though Potter's for his wife tries everything she can to, to, to get with him, he just, doesn't, he just doesn't fall for it. And eventually, because she's so frustrated with him, she accuses him of, of rape, and now the kiln fires up again, and the process gets a little worse, and it takes an unexpected turn. Here's how the scriptures describe it in chapter 39, verses 19 to 21. Potiphar, he's furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he takes Joseph and he throws him into the prison, back into the hole, where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Oh, are you serious, God? But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. Oh, really? Really? Because now I've been thrown in, in, in jail again. You're showing me your faithful love, huh, God? Because if you're showing me your faithful love, God, uh, why am I not back in Potiphar's house and why is it his wife in the prison? Why is this twisted wife winning and I'm losing? Why am I in prison and she's at the castle? Why are good things happening to bad people and bad things are happening to good people? He's stuck in jail for maybe the rest of his life for all he knows. He's hundreds of miles from home. He has no lawyers, no rights, no appeal process, no visitors, no family. And for Joseph, there's almost an element of no problem. Because even in the jail cell, there's something about Joseph. What does he do? He acts and he believes and he trusts. He believes that God is with him and for him and he's in the process. God has him right where he wants him. He lives there as someone that knows the potter and can trust the process. Now, if you know the story, it's a crazy story. It rollicks on, right? And, and the process, the kilning goes on for Joseph. He's thrown in the jail. And as he trusts in the process, God is at work and he winds up, uh, God brings two of Pharaoh's other servants into the same prison. And while they're there, they have these dreams. And, and Joseph, remember, he's the dreamer himself. Joseph winds up, God gives them the ability to interpret their dreams. 
And he does, he interprets these two guys' dreams so correctly. In fact, one of them, he tells them, you're going to die, and he dies. He interprets them so correctly that some years later, when Pharaoh himself is having dreams that he can't interpret, one of these servants that was free goes, hey, Pharaoh, remember that Israelite guy a couple years ago, that whole thing with your wife? Uh, that guy, yeah. Um, yeah, I know that you're probably still ticked off about that, but I do have to tell you, that guy has this thing where he can interpret dreams. And so, it's a crazy story, right? And so now you got a picture, Pharaoh is, hates this guy because he thinks this guy tried to rape his wife, but he really wants his dreams interpreted, so he, he brings Pharaoh, or he brings Joseph back out of the prison. And he says, okay, smart guy, interpret my dreams. And he does. God gives him the power to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And, and so the kiln goes down for a while because helping Pharaoh uh, proved his worth to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh raises him up. In fact, he becomes such a big guy in Egypt because of what he did for Pharaoh in this dream that he becomes the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. Now, some of you know what the dream was, but, but others of you might not. So here's, here's what the dream was or at least how it was interpreted by Joseph. Joseph, after hearing the dream, said, Pharaoh, here's what you need to know. Here's what God is trying to tell you. There is, in our country, in Egypt, there's about to be seven years of plenty. There will be crops aplenty. It'll, the weather will be perfect. The soil is going to be just right. And we're going to have more food than we know what to do with. But here's why. Because we're going to have seven years of plenty. Then we're going to have seven years of want. That's when the rains are going to stop. That's when the soil is going to become acidic. And that's when we're not going to be able to get anything. So here's what the dream is about. Here's what God is trying to say. He's saying that you need to, in these seven years of plenty, store up what you have so that as a nation we can get through these seven years of want that are coming. And Pharaoh is so impressed by this, he tells Joseph, okay, you're going to be in charge of this process. And so Joseph actually gets in charge of this process over the next seven years. It's a crazy story, right? But he puts him in charge. Over the next seven years, Joseph comes up with a plan to save all of Egypt's crops all around the country and store them up. And sure enough, seven years later, the rain stops, the soil dries up. Some short amount of time later, the country starts starving. People are banging on Pharaoh's door, and Pharaoh goes, you got to go talk to Joseph. Joseph in charge of everything. And Joseph throws open the doors to the storehouses, and he feeds his people. And Egypt prospers. But word gets out on the street that Egypt's eating well and everybody else is, is dying. And so people, all of the other nations, start coming to, to, to Egypt and to Joseph to, to try to get some grain, to try to get some food. They make the trek there. And word gets back actually to Jacob, Joseph's father. I love this. This is the way my father would talk to me in a loving way. Um, Chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. When Jacob heard that the grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? My father would often say, what do you have, rocks in your head? Why are you standing around looking at one another? I heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we're going to die. Now, if you read this with the normal human broken inner core eyes, you go, like most novels you've ever read, you go, oh, I see. This is how God's going to get make up for it. This is how God's going to get even. He's going to send the brothers down there to Joseph, and then Joseph is going to exact his revenge. You know, there's an old saying, 
Uh, revenge is a dish best served cold. And, you know, this story started, Joseph was in a hole when he's 17. He's about 40 now. So it's interesting, down they go. The story continues in chapter 42, verse 1. So Joseph's 10 older brothers go down into Egypt to buy the grain. But Joseph wouldn't, excuse me, Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them. He had already lost Joseph, and Benjamin was his new favorite because that was his new youngest son. So Benjamin had to stay behind because there was fear that some car might come to him. Jacob said, listen, I can't send Benjamin because something would happen to Benjamin. My heart would just be broken. To which all the other kids must have looked and said, no wonder we're all so messed up. <laughs> and so down to Egypt they go. The Bible says they go to Joseph, who's in charge of the, of the grain. And his brothers come into the room where Joseph enters. And what do they do? Do you remember the dream? Down they go on their knees. And Joseph enters the room. They bow down before him. Chapter 42. Although Joseph recognizes his brothers, it's been, I mean, it's been a long time. I thought about bringing a picture of me when I was 17. Uh, you wouldn't recognize me. Uh, Although Joseph recognized his brother, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. And he said to them, not knowing what to say, he goes, you're spies. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. And so here's the moment. This is the moment he's been waiting for. This is the moment I'd be waiting for. Oh, are you kidding me? This would be fantastic. Do you remember all those Tony Romo memes you sent me over all those years? In the Facebook world, I have friends in the Facebook world that call this karma, right? Like karma is going to catch up with you. Uh, you keep doing bad, karma is going to get you. You know, bad things are going to happen to bad people and good things are going to happen to good people. And so this would be like the karma moment, right? But here's the funny thing about karma. God doesn't buy that. That's not his way. It shouldn't be yours either. In my flesh, in my brokenness, there's something in each of us that we, we can't wait for that moment, the now you're going to get it moment. Do you remember, do you know what you did to me? Now you're going to feel it. You're going to feel what it was like when you walked out on mom. Now you're going to know what it was like when you stabbed me in the back, when you ignored or you hurt or you abused or you passed over me. And Joseph has all the power to do everything he wants. He's the second most powerful man in the world. And so enter the story. Because the story's here not just for history, but for its narrative power. What would you do, and maybe ask a more powerful question, when you've had these moments in your life, what have you done? What would you do? What have you done when the tables are turned? What would you do? What have you done when that person that backstabbed you at work suddenly now needs you to perform on the team? Hey, um, Jim, yeah, you're the only one that knows how to work the database, so I really need you to come alongside me here and uh, help me out because I, you know, I don't know how to do that. What do you do? I mean, I know what I want to do. I mean, I, the last person I'm helping is you. I want them to see how stupid you are and think about how smart I am. Right? Because they picked the wrong guy. Why would I help you? But it goes on all the time, right? What did you do? What have you done when, when your kids, maybe your adult kids, who have so often disappointed you, perhaps maybe even at some level abandoned you, what do you do when, hey, Mom? No, I haven't called in a while. It's been a while. Things are, how are you? Good? Good. Okay. Uh, yeah. 
uh, tuition, the kids, Kajus was wondering, you know, maybe you had any money you could help us out with. What do you do then? How dare you call me? You don't call me. You call me for Christmas, Easter, and tuition? Is that like the way it works? What do you do when, when your ex, who betrayed you or maybe cheated on you, who maybe lied about his income to avoid paying proper child support, what do you do when he comes and he says to you, hey, you know, the kids, they really seem to be mad at me, and I, I was hoping maybe you could help smooth this over with them? I mean, I, I know in my flesh what I'd want to do. There's a family I know of. They don't come to Menham Hills, but they're close uh, to Joan and I. And is, the son is about my age, about 50 years old, and he's got this thing that he feels like he's, he was treated terribly by his father and, you know, that, that his father was, was a bad guy to him and... It's not really true. I know the whole history of the family. I mean, there's, there's some issues there, but, it, you know, the, the son is really exacting his revenge a little bit. And what's going on right now is that the father is very sick. And it's as, if, it's as if the son now realized I have the power in this relationship and in his father's sickness has said to him, I don't ever want to talk to you again. And Joan and I were talking to the, the mother the other day, and he's cut off all relationships, and they said they can't sleep at night. They're so torn up by this. And... They want to own their stuff, and the mom wrote out everything she wanted to say to her son on a piece of paper so she didn't screw up, and she called the son, and of course the son wouldn't answer, and left the whole message about, you know, we want to accept what we did wrong, please forgive us, we weren't perfect, we realized some of the stuff we did was bad, could we just start again, we love you so much. As of last night, there's been no call back. Because this is what we do when we don't know the potter and we don't trust the process. But what does Joseph do? What does Joseph, what does a man who knows the potter and trusts the process do? He does what someone who knows that God has been with him the whole time and in charge of the whole thing does. In fact, he's a human being, right? So I think the first couple days he's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, he doesn't know what to do. So he actually puts him in jail for three days. But then he drags him out of jail and he goes, see, I know you're spies. And the guy say, no, 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 we're not spies here. I told you there's ten brothers and we're one of the ten. Actually, there's one of my brother's back, Benjamin's back, because we lost another brother a long time ago. And my father was really worried about this one. So he kept Benjamin and he sent us, and we're really not spies. See, we could tell you all about our family. And Joseph, you know, listening to all this, and he goes, okay, here, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I think you're spies. Prove to me that you're not. I'm going to give you the grain you came for, but I'm going to hold on to one of your brothers. I'm going to put him in jail. If you're not spies, you'll come back with that younger brother, and then I'll let you all go because you proved you were just here for food. And so he sends him off. In fact, he actually does something that's kind of funny. He puts their money back into their kind of satchels, so these guys get halfway home and they realize not only do they have the grain, but they have half their money and now they're thinking, holy cow, somehow we got the money. Joseph's going to think we stole the money. They already got our brother. What are we going to do? And so they make their way home and their father sees them, you know, coming over, coming over the hill. He looks at them, kind of starts going, okay, let's see. They sent out 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, not 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Aren't you missing someone? Well, dad, funny story. Um... Got down there, and he's just kind of this tough guy there, Joseph, but he thought we were spies. And, and so he said, unless we go back with Benjamin, uh, we, we aren't going to see our other brother. Well, the, uh, Jacob go, throws a fit. 
He says, there's no way, have you forgotten that I already lost Joseph? He says, there's no way I could possibly lose Benjamin now. Benjamin is my favorite son. I'm so in love with Benjamin. If something were going to happen to Benjamin, what would happen to me? I might as well just die. To which you think the brothers might be gone, what about Simeon? It is what it is, I guess. (laughs) So what's funny is they go on with life. And Simeon sits in jail, and Benjamin stays protected, and they eat until they run out of crops again. And so Jacob goes back to the brothers, and he says to his sons, you got to go back. And they go, we're not going back. We go back there now. Remember, we had the money, and they still got our brother, and we go back there without Benjamin. They're going to kill us. And, uh, and this goes on for a while, and they keep starving, and eventually Jacob is convinced that, you know what, we're all going to die. I'm going to have to send Benjamin out with us. So that's what happens. They pack Benjamin up. They all head back uh, to go visit Joseph. And, and the scripture picks up in chapter 43. It says, after Joseph had greeted them, he said, how's your father, the old man you spoke about? Is he alive? Yes, they replied, our father, your servant's alive and well. And they bowed again. Remember the dream. And then Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? Joseph asked. May God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. And he went into a private room where he broke down and he wept. And you know why? Can I just share this with you? Because theology sounds really good and these little sayings I put up sound really good until there's pain involved in them. And Joseph's standing there and he's seeing the brother that he never met from the mother that was stolen away from him, from the father who loved him and he hasn't seen, and it all became very real and it hurt. It hurt so much you had to leave the room and cry. And Joseph collects himself. And he says, well, I see that you're not spies. So, very well. Here's some more crops and grain. Be on your way. And sends them out. Although right before they leave, he does something kind of funny. And he takes a silver goblet. And he, you know, it's a possession. I think it was Pharaoh's silver goblet. And sticks it in the backpack of Benjamin. Sends them out, and they get a little ways out, and then Joseph goes, hey, silver goblet's missing. I bet it was one of those guys. Why don't you go get them? And, uh, you know, they all go out, and they surround these guys again, and these guys got to be going, man. The funny part is, they don't go, man, what did we do to deserve this? You know what? They keep going, man, we deserve this for what we did to our brother Joseph all those years ago. And so they surround him again, and they say, hey, one of you guys stole the goblet. And these guys go, are you crazy? There's no way. See, you don't understand. We, you know, they go through the whole thing. He goes, no, 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 you got the goblet. And one of the brothers is so irate, he says, listen. He goes, if one of us has the goblet, whoever has it should be sentenced to death right on the spot. Drag him back, stand him before Joseph, go through the bags. Whose bag has the silver goblet in it? Benjamin's. And you can picture the kid, the other kids going, man, dad is not going to be happy about this. <laughs> and so it's a big problem. Well, it's a big problem. And they have a conversation in front of Joseph in Hebrew because they don't think he can understand And they say, see, they believe in karma too because they they act out of their brokenness. They think God acts like we do. And they say, God is paying us back for what we did to our brother. But Joseph hears it, and there he stands. In fact, Judas, one of the brothers, finally comes forward. He goes, I swear on my life, 
I swear on my life, if you'll let me, if you'll let them go, my father said he will die if, his, if Benjamin doesn't come home. If you just let them go, you could keep me, but let the, let the rest go back to my father. And Joseph couldn't take it anymore. And in, in, in chapter 45, it says, Joseph couldn't stand it any longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendant, get out, all of you. And he was alone with his brothers. And then maybe in Hebrew, shockingly enough, he told them who he was. And see, this is a very real story. And then he broke down and he wept because it hurt. Because he'd been abandoned and lied to, harmed, abused. He broke down and he wept. In fact, he wept so loudly, the pain was so great that the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. And he deals with the pain and he walks through the pain, but he trusts the process, potter and he walks through the process and he comes back in. And in Genesis 45, he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now, enter the story. You're the brothers. What are you thinking? Oh boy, this isn't good. He's going to be ticked. And his brothers were speechless. You would guess they might be. They were stunned to realize that Joseph is standing there in front of them. And he says, you know what, no, come here. Come here. I think I'll stay right here. But they come closer and he said to them, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. And they got to be looking at him going, man, the last time I saw you, you were in a hole and you were 17. Now you're in a palace and you're 40. Here's what I want you to see. I don't know what you and I would do, but here's what happens. Here's what a person does that knows the potter and understands the process. In chapter 45, verses 5 to 8, he says, guys, don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives I mean, this famine, it's ravaged the land for two years. It's going to last another five. There's going to be neither plowing or harvesting. It wasn't you that did this, guys. God sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve so many survivors. It was God who sent me here, not you. He's the one that did this. He's the one that made me an advisor to Pharaoh. Because Joseph understands. He trusts the potter, and he understands the process. He understood the process when he was at home with his father and when he was at the bottom of the pit with his brothers. He knew the potter when he was in Potiphar's house and when he was in the jail. He trusted in the process when he sat on a throne and when he saved a nation. And he looks at his brothers and goes, you don't have to fear because I don't think like you do. Because I know the potter and I trust the process. You see things as people who don't know the potter you see things as people who don't trust the process. I don't see things like you do. See, I believe that God is for me and was with me when you threw me in the pit. So in both in plenty and in want, I know who he is. I know he's with me. And I know he's working out all things for my good. You realize Joseph knew this thousands of years before Paul wrote it in the New Testament. You see, you don't need to be afraid, he says to his brothers. I, I'm not going to hurt you. I don't need revenge. I don't need retribution. 
I don't need to prove myself to you or to anyone else. I'm not afraid of how this is going to look to people. I'm not afraid of what you might say or what they might do. Do you want to, Menem Hills, do you want to know how to take a sad song and make it better? You've got to trust the potter. And you've got to trust the process. It's a very old saying. Joseph knew it, at least in his heart. And this is what you need to understand, because it's true in your marriage, and in your job, and in your health, and with your kids. Just because God is silent, it does not mean God is absent. Just because he's silent, just because you're in a pit, just because of relational dysfunction, just because you might go, this is not where I want to be, this isn't the job I wanted, this isn't the school I wanted, this isn't the relationship I wanted, just because God is silent does, is silent does not mean he's absent. Trust the potter. He has you in a process. And when we get this, this is the most freeing principle you will ever have. I'm right where God wants me to be. I, he's got me in the palm of his hand. I'm going to wrap up this story with another, come on up, Ben, with another line from Hey Jude. It has so much power if you get it, and it's in this story so deeply. Paul tells little Julian, remember this woman, Yoko Ono? Hey, remember Yoko Ono, how she threw your family in a pit? How she broke your mom's heart and stole your dad? You remember Yoko Ono? Paul says, remember to let her under your skin, let her into your heart. And then you can begin to make it better. And the lesson, this is what it looks like when you trust God. This is what, what it looks like when you trust the potter and you walk in the process. I keep telling my wife and kids, look, you got to trust the process. you got to trust the process. In your relationships with all of those who have hurt you, what would it look like for you to make the gospel something that you acted out and just didn't believe in? To forgive and not extract revenge, not to have to be right or to get even. What could that single principle mean in your home, in your office, with your mom, with your dad, with your brother, your sister? What if you let them into your heart again? Because the truth is that's where the healing starts. That's where the gospel becomes real and it becomes to life. I'll close with this. Some years later, several chapters later in Genesis, one of the last books in Genesis, um, Jacob dies. And see, the brothers, they're still thinking this is a karma thing, right? Like, oh, man, dad died. Now he's really going to get us. See, I think he was just being easy on us because dad was here. But now that dad's gone, we're doomed. And so they go to Joseph and they go, and they said, you know, dad really would have wanted you to protect us. And here's what Joseph says in chapter 50. Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I punish you? You intended harm for me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position. He allowed this process to take place. Though I did not want it or wish for it or, or though it was because of your sin or though it was because of the fallen world we live in, somehow he allowed it. Why did he do that? So I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I'm going to continue to take care of you and your children. And it, if you know the Timmerman family has been this 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 story has just sprung to life. Um, you know, they lost their son, Jack. And I remember the night I went, to the, I went there, the night that, that Jack passed in that horrible accident. And Don and I were up in, in Jack's bedroom, and we were by his bed, and we were looking at his stuff. And we just got down on our knees together and, and put our heads down on, on Jack's bed, and we were just crying out to God. And I remember, I remember Don saying, God, if there's any good that can come out of this, 
Many of you know the story. Here we sit a couple years later, tens of thousands of dollars and houses being popped up all over a garbage dump in Guatemala and the legacy of a young man whose life was caught way, uh, caught, struck way too short, but whose legacy will probably be greater than most of ours. See, so you have to, even in, in the kiln, even in those places where it hurts, even those places where it makes no sense, if you will trust the potter, you can trust the process. Let's stand and close in, in song.